Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby and today I'm joined by Dr. Michelle Classens. Dr. Classens recently worked as Head of Communications and External Relations for the ITER Nuclear Fusion Project in France, as well as Acting Head of Communications for Research and Innovation at the European Commission. He now teaches science communication at the Free University of Brussels, where he was also a student, by the way, uh, earning a PhD in physical chemistry. And most importantly for this conversation, he's the author of a new book, The Science and Politics of COVID-19, published just this year, where he analyzes how governments and scientists interacted during the first year of the COVID pandemic. The subtitle of the book is very much on point for this podcast, How Scientists Should Tackle Global Crises. So, Michelle, welcome and thanks for your time. Thank you, Toby. Nice to meet you. So give us the big picture. What's the main message of the book? I like to quote uh, a doctor of the, the 19th century, Rudolf Virchow. He said that uh, an epidemic is a social phenomenon with some medical aspects. It's basically the message that uh, the book provides. I analyze in the book and I compare the management of the crisis in different countries. And this is a, a hook, in a way, to, to learn more about the relations between science, politics and society. Uh, and it, it highlights also the, the government strategies and the scientific research around uh, this issue. Yeah, and you don't pull your punches. You talk about mismanagement of the crisis. What do you mean? Clearly, a lot of governments underestimated the pandemic. And this is in particular true for France, the UK, the United States, and many, many others, Belgium too. They, they systematically ignore or underestimated the warning signals that have been sent by the scientific community very early. And the result is that these countries have paid a high price. Uh, I show in details how these governments continuously delayed taking actions against the, the epidemic. This is uh, one of the main lessons that I've learned from, from, from the analysis. It shows that, uh, in short, that uh, speed is everything. And countries which took quickly decisions clearly uh, perform much better. Right. Now, I'm interested to know to what extent you think that kind of mistake could have been avoided. I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty. So could you really have, have done better at the time or was it inevitable that we'd be too slow off the mark? Yes, I think um, we could have done better. And uh, uh, the best proof is that uh, some countries did it, uh, like uh, in Europe, Greece, for example, Austria, and uh, Vietnam, uh, Germany also. Uh, Taiwan, uh, New Zealand, not to mention China, of course. All these countries took very quick decisions and quite radical decisions, like closing schools very quickly, uh, closing the borders, uh, implementing uh, an extensive testing strategy. So quite many countries did it better. That makes sense. I mean, we can certainly drill down into the detail of some of these countries, but Thinking in general, this is not the first pandemic the world has endured, as we know these things come around every so often. 
So do you have any insight into whether these mistakes and challenges were like the same last time around? And also, I suppose, do you feel any more optimistic that we might have learned some lessons this time that will help us next time? <laughs> Good question. You know, for the book, I interviewed a lot of doctors, scientists, uh, journalists also, and um, advisors, uh, government advisors, and so on. And many of these people say, it seems we didn't learn from the, uh, the previous pandemics. This message come, came on and again uh, from different countries, from different uh, people. So it seems, yes, we, we have a problem there. Uh, we don't get the lessons from um, what happened before and the previous uh, pandemic. So it's a kind of a repetition. Yeah. I wonder because... You know, if another pandemic hits us in, say, five years' time, <laughs> heaven forbid, we might be a bit more familiar with how to handle these things. But it seems like the amount of time makes a difference. Institutional memory, government memory, like we take our eyes off the ball in 20 or 50 or 100 years. It may be. It may be because there are some initiatives in the pipeline. But for example, one of the problems of this uh, pandemic is the, the lack of international cooperation. Most countries closed their blinds, closed their borders. Some re withdrew from uh, European and international projects because they say uh, we have to, to deal with the, the, the internal mess first. Uh, fortunately, the, the World Health Organization and the European Commission were there and did a lot of initiatives to, to promote the international cooperation, but globally speaking. There has been a slowing down of the international cooperation, although the problem is clearly global. Very few cooperation, for example, on the harmonization of the counting methods of cases and deaths. Few international cooperation about the, the testing methods, testing protocols, which means that we cannot compare uh, safely the, the data from different countries because basically they use the same techniques but with different parameters. So I hope this lesson will, will get through, but I'm not sure of this. You looked at four countries in detail. So China, the US, France and the UK. Could you say a bit about the similarities you found between those countries and also any important differences in terms of their response to COVID? Yeah, the US, uh, France and the UK uh, have in common the fact that they were slow to decide and then too quick to exit the lockdown. Okay. These countries, these three countries are among the most scientifically advanced and they have efficient hospital system, but they are still at the top of the list of COVID-19 mortalities. This is a little bit what I explained there incomprehensible delays and so these countries pay a high price. China is different, it's very different. <laughs> they took quickly harsh decisions. They isolated people uh, contaminated but also the contacts in a very uh, almost military discipline. The US did not have a nationwide uh, lockdown as you may know. So basically this comparison uh, of strategy led to the question, could a Chinese-style COVID-19 strategy be implemented in democratic countries? Some are thinking yes, but it's, it looks a little bit complicated and uh, difficult 
to follow the same strategy. In any case, in some countries, you have uh, experts promoting a, a, a sort of zero COVID strategy. So looking carefully at the measures which could be implemented to eliminate the, the virus. It's easy to say, probably not easy to achieve in practice. I certainly recall there was very lively debate on the scientific side. We'll come to that in a minute, maybe. But early on in the pandemic, about the appropriateness of pursuing that response. And some countries absolutely went for zero COVID. Um, and others argued that it simply won't work because we're part of a global system. And even if we manage to eliminate the virus completely within our borders, then what? You know, unless the whole world follows suit, which obviously it won't, we'll only end up importing it again. Do you feel like that's still a live debate now? It's still a debate, yes, although you are right. In a global um, system, either we... Well, that, that's why we should have more international cooperation to try and go uh, all in more or less the same direction. Huh? Do we want to live with the virus? Okay, then there are some measures uh, which uh, should be taken. Or do we try to eradicate the SARS-CoV-2? It's still being discussed. Okay, interesting. So you draw quite a clear correlation between the countries that were slow to respond at the start and maybe also that lifted lockdowns too early, so kind of got it wrong at both ends, as it were, um, and the level of impact of the virus, the number of deaths and so on. Um, I spoke on this podcast a while ago now, towards the end of 2020, with uh, a scientist from the UK who, who drew a different correlation. Um, so to be fair, he wasn't talking about China. He was comparing the UK to places like New Zealand, which had very low levels of the virus at the time, as you know, um, partly because they closed their borders. And he was defending the UK's record, saying um, basically it's less about the speed of our lockdown or the severity of our measures. It's more about the global connectedness of the country. So, of course, a country like the UK or I suppose France or the US, these are places that can't simply at a stroke cut off all travel because they're global hubs. And in fact, now we know that they'd imported the virus onto their shores thousands of times before we even knew to start looking for it. And compare that to somewhere like New Zealand, which with the best will in the world is not a global hub. And because of its physical location, it can close its borders much more easily, at least geographically speaking. So that was where he laid the blame. What do you think about that? What do you think about the relative importance of geographical versus like political or public health factors? Yeah, it's interesting. Probably these factors played a quite important role. There have been scientific papers highlighting the the impact of international traveling and uh, the connectedness of a country. And they show that there is clearly a correlation also on, with the number of contaminations uh, in the country. So clearly the, the fact that uh, a country is open, uh, dynamic on the international scene, etc., is a factor. Um, but still, um, there have been several studies in the UK showing uh, at least at the beginning in the early 2020, one or two weeks delays before taking harsh measures or lockdown, for example, uh, had a strong impact on the number of cases. So 
we cannot blame, I think, only uh, the international dimension. One last question while we're talking about general policy, and then let's talk about science and science advice. What do you think lies behind the slowness, or, or indeed behind the quickness of China? Why did policymakers move too slowly in some places? Was it that they didn't understand what was going on, or they were too optimistic, or they were misinformed by the scientists, or, or what? What appears um, in the interviews, the discussion that I had also in the literature, uh, to some extent, is that uh, governments were slow because deciding a, a lockdown is a very difficult and a radical decision with the risk of slowing down the economy, of course, and putting a lot of pressures on individuals, etc. So um, you have to, to take this kind of decision very carefully. This explained the, the slowness on the government side. It seems, on the other hand, that they had a good information from the scientific community uh, with simulation studies, with uh, a lot of warnings, information on the, the virus itself, which, uh, you know, was decoded very quickly huh, after China uh, warns the uh, World Health Organization at the end of 2019. And uh, a few days after the genome of the virus was decoded completely on 15th of January, so two weeks, it was public uh, and available in the, the database. So we cannot say that China has been slow on that part. Uh, there have been problems in China, as, as uh, we all know, but uh, not uh, on, on this part. On the other hand, scientists themselves, experts and advisors to the government, they were lacking maybe clear and firm messages. They were not uh, firm enough in advising the government. Th that comes out from some experts in the UK, in France in particular. So they acknowledge uh, themselves the fact that maybe um, they were not clear enough at, uh, in the early stage of the pandemic. Right. Interesting. And then the question arises. So, okay, so if perhaps the science community or the science advice community regrets not sounding the alarm earlier or not being firm enough, then the question arises, if they had, might things have worked out better in terms of the evolution of the pandemic? Yeah. Um, in some countries, um, the message from the scientific community were, were taken up by, by governments very quickly. So, like China, for example. They were very quick, and uh, the link between the scientists and the government worked well. Well, this is in part because they've been traumatized by previous pandemic, and so they were very, very, very careful, and they reacted very quickly. Talking for a minute about the science community itself, rather than science advisors or governments, mm -hmm. a couple of past guests on this podcast have, have commented that scientists so in contrast to governments, responded quite well to the crisis in terms of setting up international channels of communication pretty early. And the sense I get is that scientists were in touch with one another around the world early on in the pandemic and really started to focus their efforts on the emerging disease. And from what you described earlier, governments didn't really do that. You described them as closing the blinds internationally. Does this difference ring true based on what you've learned? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree also. Um, 
we have seen this in previous crises during wars also the scientific community remains active remains connected beyond the, the borders and continue working this pandemic is no exception basically the scientific community reacted very well very quickly a lot of publications were available in parallel to the peer review process okay it creates its some problem but basically the net result is very positive because it's it shared and make public a lot of information so from that point of view the scientific community reacted very well again what appears in the interviews and some uh, articles is that they've been uh, slow probably because they they fear that uh, the population would not accept harsh measures like lockdowns etc or they fear also about uh, the, the the reactions of uh, from the politicians that's interesting so you're suggesting that scientists science advisors are kind of taking on board themselves how they think the public might react when they judge how to present the evidence yes and uh, we have seen also uh, in france some reactions of the president of uh, the scientific council jean-françois delfrecy he said very honestly in in, uh, in an interview perhaps we did not sufficiently appreciate the gravity of the pandemic and others in the uk also okay one of the problem is that the experts started to assume that covid will be a sort of influenza uh, epidemic um mais voilà mais from the scientific point of view um it was a very good reaction well so now that's interesting because you've mentioned two different possible factors at play here and i think they're actually the difference is important so when you say that science advisors underestimated the gravity of what was happening okay so that's one possibility essentially you're saying they made a mistake in the conclusions they drew from the evidence understandable perhaps given what was going on but then a second possibility which is what i thought you were saying a moment ago is that scientists actually fully appreciated the gravity of the, of the of what was going on but despite that they moderated their advice because they thought it might fall on deaf ears so the science advisor thinks you know if i say this to the politicians they'll laugh at me or they'll reject it or it won't be politically possible to do what i'm suggesting so if i change the advice i give then maybe it could be more palatable based on what i think the audience wants to hear yeah we have seen this in the uk for example uh where chris witty the chief medical advisor at a press conference with neil ferguson where neil was presenting the the, the latest data and the, the rationale for the uh, lockdown uh chris witty immediately commented by saying that okay the the the, f- the data are not yet completed so lowering the profile uh and the seriousness of uh, the situation in the uk well so it's typical from the at least some uh, of the people who advise the government hmm. so you're suggesting that that wasn't a scientific disagreement that those two essentially agreed on the science but they wanted to present a different kind of recommendation yeah that's that's my understanding yes all right well that's certainly an important thing to observe i think let's talk now a little bit about science advice systems and mechanisms some people have noted that there seems to be no correlation 
between those countries that have mature or sophisticated science advice systems and those countries that responded well to the pandemic? In other words, having a good science advice system didn't seem to help you in terms of uh, having good outcomes from the pandemic. What do you think? Yeah, this is true. (laughs) If you compare the mortality rates between the UK and Vietnam, for example, uh, it's more than a factor 10 today in favor of Vietnam. And I think in the early uh, months of the pandemic, it's a factor 100 or even 1,000. Again, Vietnam reacted very quickly the day after the announcement of the first uh, death in China. Uh, they controlled the borders, closed the school, and applied a strict isolation. So it's true. It's unfortunately that <laughs> some advanced uh, countries do not perform better. Yeah, which tells us, I suppose, that it's not about, or in this case, it was not about the science advice infrastructure, that other factors are more mm. important. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Along the same lines, something else we've seen a lot is that governments that had existing science advice mechanisms, even like pre-built ways to get emergency advice or crisis advice, um, nonetheless set up new systems specifically when COVID came along and in many cases pretty much ignored what was already there. You know, they appointed a new advisor or set up a new committee. Why do you think that was? I think this was a political decision and also a mediatic response. France is the champion there because they created no less than four committees on COVID. <laughs> a COVID-19 scientific council, a second committee called CARE, Comité Analyse, Recherche et Expertise, for the post-lockdown, basically. And then a third committee on the vaccines and a fourth committee on the vaccination strategy. I'm not sure that these are the best decisions. It's, it's, it complicates the, the, the process uh, you set up parallel organizations. Uh, I cannot accept the idea that administrations in France, the UK, the US do not have enough specialists inside. <laughs> they were working with uh, external experts already. So I don't, I'm not sure this is the best uh, mechanism uh, in, uh, in crisis. And it complicates uh, the communications. It blurs the, the message from the government and the, the scientific community as well. Not sure. These this are the best decisions. Oh, okay, but, but why did it happen then? They've done this to show to the public that they are taking uh, the, the crisis, the, the, the epidemic, very seriously. It provides a message to the media, to the population. Look, it's exceptional, so we take exceptional measures and we set up exceptional committees. Maybe less in the case of the UK because uh, SAGE, SAGE exists uh, before COVID. Huh? Yeah, indeed. And also the Joint Vaccination Committee. But I was thinking also about the, the European Union because the EU, or the Commission at least, already has several ways to get science advice. And yet when COVID hit, the first thing they did was to appoint a new special advisor. It just strikes me as interesting because, you know, we talk a lot about how to develop a science advice mechanism and how to build trust and relationships and so on. Partly, I guess, with the exact intention that when we suddenly have a desperate need, the channels exist, the relationships exist, it's all ready to go. And so it's kind of curious that 
when the rubber did hit the road in this case, systems that had been built were quite often just swept aside in favour of inventing a new temporary mechanism that had to start from scratch. Yeah, and uh, the problem with these um, temporary committees is that uh, after a few months they will they will disappear. So in a way, we will also lose voilà, some of the expertise, except if, uh, very good memory, archiving system, etc. But uh, uh, some experts say that voilà, it looks like we didn't learn anything after the the previous epidemics. Mm, yeah, another phenomenon that we saw at least in some countries, was the emergence of these kind of celebrity science advisors. So big household names, personalities that people started to recognize from seeing them on TV every day. And these were scientists, right, who in most cases previously had operated, you know, in government offices or universities in the shadow, well, not in the shadows, because that suggests <laughs> something creepy, but, you know, behind the scenes. Then they were suddenly thrust out into the limelight. I think it's a good thing. Um... Bon, I will moderate a little bit maybe what I say, but uh, uh, in principle, it's a good thing because uh, some of these uh, famous advisors, very visible uh, experts, they explain in very well to the, the public, they popularize very well the information. So they pass a lot of, at least they can pass, they can pass a lot of uh, messages and information to the public. So. This is good. Huh? Uh, I'm sure uh, the, the scientific culture of the population increased quite substantially, at least in the medical subjects uh, during COVID, because there was a lot of information about viruses, about epidemic, and even on mathematics, about exponential propagation, etc. So all this is good, of course. The problem maybe is that the public do not always understand why uh, scientific experts, advisors may have very different opinions or different interpretation and even conflicting or fighting even between them. <laughs> and uh, these experts should be a bit careful and, and think about this and remind the public also that in the COVID and still now, it's not so much about science communication, but about research communication. The science which is being done, being constructed, you see, but not yet uh, robust, not yet uh, consolidated. If you explain this, then you understand why scientists may have different opinions, different approaches, etc. This is, this is part of the research uh, enterprise, if I may say. Yeah. So, but one interesting consequence of all that is the blurring of the responsibilities in the eyes of the public for the decisions that are taken. You know, it's not just that you have scientists presenting or co-presenting the decisions alongside politicians. You also have the politicians saying very proudly, we're following the science. We're doing what the science advisors tell us to do. And sometimes I feel like it almost becomes, don't blame me for these horrible new rules it's dictated by the science. I mean, not in so many words usually, but you see the point. And I think that's kind of a new phenomenon because when the scientists are behind the scenes, the public sees the politician and they basically know who to blame. But when the scientists are up front alongside the politicians and speaking directly into the camera, as it were, that changes the dynamic somewhat. It's not uh, new. We have seen this in previous crises. Uh, 
um, Macco disease and so on. Uh, politicians, where they are pressed, where they feel uncomfortable, they will try to put the light, the, the focus on the scientists and maybe in some cases blame them uh, indeed, which is maybe a little bit unfair. And uh, scientists uh, accepting to advise government should be aware uh, of this and be careful also. And um, be very clear about their role, what they say, their independence. Um, and during the COVID, we have seen well, uh, some committees uh, changing their mind after a strong reaction from the government, uh, which is a pity. Uh, which It's not their role. Uh, well, we are all human beings, of course. But... Um, they should be strong uh, and reaffirm their, their position clearly. Right. And then what we ask from the government is a very difficult thing because we ask them to take their own decisions, but also to communicate clearly about whether whether or not they're following the advice they were given. Because I guess it's very easy for um, a liberal-leaning politician like Macron or Boris Johnson. Like the last thing they want to do is to impose these very severe restrictions on the lives of their citizens, of course, quite naturally. So it's easier for them to say, look, don't blame me. I really don't want to do this, which I know is true, but the scientists tell me I have to. And that contrasts then, or it's kind of the same thing, I guess, but in mirror image with what you were describing when you have advisory committees changing their minds about recommendations, apparently because of pressure from politicians to tell them what they want to be told. It's difficult. It's difficult and uh, probably they do not stress enough the collective role we all have to play. Of course, the scientists uh, propose, the government decide on that basis, and Macron, Johnson, Joe Biden, they, they claim very clearly that we rely on science. But uh, we, as uh, citizens, we, we have all... Uh, a responsibility there also huh? to follow the rules, to implement, etc. So, uh, it's 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 a collective exercise uh, actually. Good. Okay, my last question, our last area of questions, looking to the future about science advice. It seems like, well, over the last two years, the relationship between scientists and politicians has been evolving, very publicly evolving. And the role of science advice and the fact that there is such a thing as science advice has been has become a big part of the public conversation, has been exposed to the limelight. Do you think this is a positive change overall? And secondly, do you think it will have long-term consequences about how these things work? Yeah, of course. Um, we have seen uh, scientific advice in the spotlight during uh, the last two years. And which is very good, and uh, it was much appreciated by by, by the public. By the way, um, other surveys also show that the media performed quite well. There is a, uh, a study conducted in the UK about this, showing that British journalists, at least the majority of them, managed quite well with the huge influx of numbers, statistics, etc. during <laughs> the last two years. So the study is very positive and uh, show that uh, we are far from the stereotype image of the journalist who is sometimes presented as a number phobic <laughs> or statistically incompetent uh, uh, person. This is not 
demonstrated, supported by, by the COVID. And in Italy, in France also, some studies show that media regained credibility during the pandemic. So this is, this is quite good too. Um, about the long-term evolution, bon, it's a little bit too early maybe to say, to, to conclude. I'm not too optimistic. Uh, and in my book, uh, I argue about the need for a, a long-term mechanism ensuring a collaboration, a very a good collaboration between science and politics. We are still missing this. It exists in some uh, fields like uh, climate change with the, the IPCC, uh, which is doing a very good job. This model has been implemented in, in the biodiversity area. Uh, we, we need probably something like that also in, uh, in the field of uh, health, public health and uh, medicine. And at, at what level are you, is this a global thing you're imagining? This is way. This is way. This should be. This should be a global level. I know. I know. I know the, that the European Union has taken initiative to draft a, a, an international treaty on pandemics, which may uh, cover uh, what I say. It's in the pipeline, so I haven't seen the draft yet. So it, they are working on this. So it's interesting. Maybe this will be a. a very positive uh, lesson or consequence to the pandemic. We're probably entering now an era of public inquiries and investigations into what happened and, and what went wrong. Maybe we'll see some more light shed on these kinds of issues. We'll see. I don't expect too much, but uh, we may have a nice surprise. Yeah, well, in the meantime, we have your book, which is well worth the... Re well, at least I read it and I, I learned a lot. Um, and I read it in English, but I think it's also available in French, right? The book is, has been published in French also, uh, more or less the same time, because for the first time I wrote, I wrote in parallel in French. Did you really? Wow, I hadn't realized that. Yes, yeah, it's not a translation. That must have been quite an undertaking in practical terms, the, the, the complexity of writing a book in two languages at once. Ask my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Okay. Well, so Michel Lucassens, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been a really interesting conversation. And of course, I'll put a link to the aforementioned book in the show notes so listeners can find it there if they're interested. Thank you, Toby, for the very interesting question on the science of vice and the relations between science and society. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.